welcome to the Next Wave podcast brought to you by Headstream. Headstream believes in the powerful potential of digital platforms to uplift and empower youth well-being. Through vulnerable, valuable, evolving, and supportive connections being built into online spaces. Learn more about Headstream, an initiative by Second Muse, at headstreaminnovation.com. Welcome back to Headstream's The Next Wave. Today, we are going to continue our exploration of human connection in the digital age with Pramila. Pramila is one of our three Headstream Fellows. She is a recent UC Davis grad. And right now, she's currently applying to grad school. She is doing all kinds of amazing work about visibility in digital spaces for young people. So welcome, Pramila. I'm very happy to have you here today. Thank you so much. I'm very excited to be here. So we're going to hit the ground running. And this entire podcast series is really dedicated to exploring the purpose and the experience of human connection in the digital age, specifically as it relates to youth wellness. And the way that we start these podcasts is by understanding our guests' understanding of wellness. So we'll start that same way with you. Would you mind walking us through how you define or how you experience wellness? Oh, wow. Going straight for the jugular. So this is something I have questioned. <laughs> so this is something I've questioned constantly during this fellowship. And I've interviewed over 30 people. And to be very honest, I still don't really know what it means. But I'm still going to take a gander at it. So when I was younger, I was taught that well-being is this ideal version of you that you need to aspire to. It was essentially like this neatly packaged box with a really pretty bow that said, this is the best version of you and you need to get here at some point. But turns out trying to aspire to something so limited and so restrictive is quite difficult, not to mention really, really toxic. And over the years, I've unlearned a lot of things about that. And right before starting this project, I figured well-being was less like a box and more like a tree with different kinds of branches. And these branches represent different components of well-being, whether that's physical, psychological, spiritual, emotional, however it is that people want to define them as. And, you know, just like with all the trees, all these branches have blossoms. They... Some of them grow really easily. Some of them need a lot more care and nurturing to grow. Some of them need to be pruned in order to curtail toxicity. And it was just this beautiful idea that I was very happy with. But after doing this fellowship, I realized that there were some aspects of society that make it almost impossible for people to nurture certain branches. Structural systems of oppression make well-being really, really difficult for marginalized communities. For example, look at a branch of mental well-being. You can talk about the fact that everyone can grow that branch when you look at the LGBTQ community and see that there are disproportionately high rates of mental health issues and suicide. You can talk that physical well-being is accessible to everyone when in this time of coronavirus, people are having to choose their paycheck over their health. And confronting these realities has completely dismantled what well-being has meant to me, and I'm still trying to figure out what it means. 
Oh my God, Pramila, I knew that you were going to like really give it to us today, but you just went for it from the beginning. And honestly, that's why I'm so grateful that you're on the show right now and that you're able to speak because everything that you're saying is so important for our listeners to know. And for I people- also like how she started with like, oh, I guess I'll give it a shot. And then she just <laughs> went bullseye. bullseye. Oh yeah, she gave it a shot and just zoomed. <laughs> yeah, she <laughs> Oh man, no, but Pramila, that's, I really want to hone in on a lot of these really profound concepts that you've already started to introduce, especially like when thinking about the fact that there are certain structures of oppression that don't actually let those branches get nurtured and allow them to grow and for well-being to be truly impactful for all human beings in the way that it should. And so when thinking about this new world that we live in, which is very highly on digital spaces. I'm curious to hear from all of your sharings about well-being and wellness. How would you describe the connection then between youth wellness and digital spaces? So I learned a very tricky thing about the connection between youth wellness and digital spaces. I realized that youth well-being has equally devastating and regenerating processes built into it. So it showed me that the terms that we associate with well-being tend to have a light and a dark side, right? But neither is inherently good or bad. For example, if you take a look at vulnerability, it's a combination of discomfort and empowerment. Something like self-care is a combination of love and accountability. Growth is a combination of unlearning and resilience. Each of these concepts that form the core of that well-being can be equally destructive, but also like a phoenix raises from the ashes kind of regenerating. And what I realized about digital spaces is that we have a tendency to provide resources that focus on improving the light end of the spectrum, being things like love, resilience, and empowerment. We do not have enough resources to navigate the dark side. We don't have resources to navigate discomfort or accountability or unlearning. Both are equally important and equally recurring phases in our life. And they oscillate wildly during the teenage and early 20s. We can't build for a stable well-being if we hyper-focus on the positive elements. Turns out the difficult parts help us overcome adversity and establish a stronger sense of self. And when youth are dealing with very real, very visceral, life-changing struggles, the support that they need also needs to feel very real, visceral, and life-changing. So even though we have a lot of resources centered around empowerment, we also need digital tools that are real and authentic about discomfort. Because we're going to reach that uncomfortable, vulnerable part again. And unless we can navigate that, it'll be pretty difficult to reach the empowered, vulnerable part. You know what I mean? But that's what we're here to do, right? And I hope we get to it. I am speechless. Specifically, as it relates to the spectrums that you provided, love balanced with accountability. And correct me if I'm wrong, you had resilience on one end and unlearning on the other, and then empowerment on one end and discomfort in the other. Did I get those right? Yeah, absolutely. The fact that you are presenting these concepts as balanced concepts, as concepts that need, that live in relationship with each other, is really one of the biggest takeaways that I'm taking of all of the podcasts that, that we are, are sharing. 
because you're really talking about just the concept of balance as integral to our ability to experience wellness. And digital spaces either allow these to happen or prevent these from happening. So if you had a magic wand to create the ideal digital platform, the ideal digital communication platform for young people, what would you wish this platform to be like so that it can better support youth wellness? To be completely candid, I used to think that you needed this perfect solution that can target every single issue that is happening and can be a one-stop place for everyone to find solutions that they need. But we're actually dealing with very, very complex, imperfect problems. And that means that it's okay if we take one part of that problem and make an imperfect solution for it. I don't think a perfect solution is ever going to exist. I think we just need to embrace that imperfection and make an effort nonetheless. I really like that your answer is essentially there is no answer and that needs to be the answer. Because if we focus on creating a single platform that works for everyone, then we're never actually going to be able to create anything because that doesn't exist. So if I'm hearing you correctly, what I'm hearing you say is we should really take the complexity and rather than trying to oversimplify it, acknowledge that that is what it has to be. Kind of. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think acknowledging that complexity is also a part of the journey of well-being. And if we as people who are creating the solutions can't acknowledge that, then how can we expect the people who are reaching out for these solutions to be okay with that? Yeah, I'm, I'm being very self-reflective now during listening to everything that you've been saying, thinking about how a lot of times solutions are oftentimes just like one-off blanket things that we think apply for all people. But to really create social change, you need to get down into the weeds. You need to make it specific. You need to really like hone in on those complexities and really know that like you may not have an answer, but provide those tools to allow people to find their own answers. And I'm just sitting here thinking about my own answers. I don't know about you, Yvonne, but (laughs) my mind is just kind of going there. And I don't know, like, I'm just thinking about your role on this fellowship and thinking about how all of these learnings that you have, I'm curious about how your own beliefs about youth well-being, everything that you've shared with us thus far and its connection to digital spaces have been impacted by the work that you do. Like what assumptions were maybe challenged? What assumptions were maybe affirmed? Absolutely. So this might be a long, long answer because I learned a lot of things through this fellowship and I hope that you can be patient as I word vomit. Take your time. Take your time. (laughs) To start things off, I think when I started this fellowship, I came in with the assumption that I know nothing and I'm here to learn everything. But even though I came in with no assumptions, I realized that I came in with a lot of notions that I've learned to be the reality of the environment that I'm in. But after interviewing people, I realized that turns out it wasn't quite the reality. It was just assumptions that other people told me to expect as the reality. I know that sounds very convoluted, but I'll actually go into three of those assumptions and tell you how they completely dismantled for me after interviewing people. So, assumption number one was that. As long as your product has the impact that you're striving for, the intention behind creating your product doesn't matter. 
So the ends essentially justify the means. Don't worry about it. This was something I heard a lot when I got started on my own entrepreneurship journey. But here's what I found tricky. For example, if you take a look at the fact that people are trying to build solutions to increase access to education, the idea is as long as we build more and more online programs, that should solve the issue. But that doesn't address the fact that there are people who don't have access to internet. It doesn't address the fact that there are people who don't have the financial resources to pay for the subscription model education. It doesn't address the fact that there are people who have disability issues and designers are not making these solutions more and more acceptable to people. And it made me realize that there's a huge chasm between what we perceive as problems that can be monetized and solutions that can actually help people in the world. And what that leads to is product developers end up making a solution for the namesake because the core of their motives would be to maximize profit versus actually solving the problems. And then you take advocates and activists and you put them against product developers and you notice that all of these people who actually care about creating solutions for this and the people who are actually creating solutions for this are completely polarized. There needs to be an intersection in the subject matter expertise. And it's only then that you can solve problems, but you can also solve problems out of compassion. This whole thing about actually looking into people's intentions made me realize that a deep level of humanity is actually required for understanding well-being and building social technologies to genuinely support human existence. You can't build genuine products if you don't have those intentions. My second assumption that was challenged was people told me, create a solution that fits the majority and then iterate for the edge cases if and when you have the time. And I'm going to take a very, I'm going to give a very bad explanation of statistics now. <laughs> but if you take a representative sample of a population, right, you need to focus on the problems that the majority of the people are facing because you can't solve every single problem. But when you look at user personas and the features that product developers end up picking, you see that they end up hyper-focusing on similar problems, and that translates into minority communities becoming the edge cases. And this has happened even with me during numerous ideathons and design thinking workshops, where the design solutions are always trying to prioritize simple problems that multiple people face, rather than complex problems that a few people face. And it leads to this bizarre phenomena that I can only describe as trickle-down social impact. We end up building solutions to solve generic high-level issues that address very superficial social issues. You build things for people that want solutions, but not for those who need solutions. At the end of the day, you still technically address social issues. They just don't adequately impact the communities that need it the most. And what we need to do is to flip that narrative. We need to go from a trickle-down social impact paradigm to a bottom-up social impact paradigm. As a social impact innovator, you need to ideate with marginalized communities. You need to actively listen and learn the very nitty-gritty complex issues that are specific to each community. You then build deep, thoughtful solutions that address these communities.
or that address these issues that the communities face. Because this is what it means to build inclusively. And this is where you need to start in order to build social change that can actually transform well-being. My last assumption that I heard was social impact can be sustainable because it cannot be capitalized. So to explain this a little bit, I'd like to give my own personal story. Last year, I quit my job and decided to build an app that focuses on mental health and anxiety. What I realized through that journey was that there's actually so much complexity in the mental health landscape. And there's actually not enough data to show what kind of solutions will be helpful or even what kind of solutions communities actually need. There was no set path to figure out what I needed to build and what I needed to optimize. At that point, when I talked to innovators, they essentially told me that there was no point in building something till it gives me a steady stream of revenue. And there was definitely no point in pitching it unless there's a billion dollar market for my app. And that was extremely disheartening and disillusioning. Talking to Headstream innovators, though, was a very, very different experience. I realized that they capitalized for the purpose of sustaining instead of building this astronomical growth. And they capitalized so that they can actually balance social impact. Granted, a lot of the innovators were still very early stage, but their intention was still impact over revenue. And that was mind-blowing for me that there are people successful in maintaining that. So in my sea of utter hopelessness, Headstream honestly gave me a glimmer of hope. And, you know, like sometimes even that glimmer of hope can be really, really scary because on one hand, it shows me that there's a chance that people can honestly develop and be successful in creating things from a true spirit of compassion and equity. But it's also scary to get back into that space and to put myself through that again. But I guess a little bit of hope is better than no hope. Let's take a second to let all of that sink in. All of you listening to this, take a second, pause. If you're driving, take a second to take a deep breath. If you're at the office, take a second and like just push yourself away from your desk. Because all of what you just heard is a master class in how to design intentionally with communities rather than to communities. Everything that you just heard, it, it really speaks for itself. Uh, what do you think, Mina? I just, besides the fact that that was just like a really perfect blueprint for anybody who wants to design for any type of specific group of people, but just thinking about Pramila, listening to your personal journey, your evolution is so beautiful. And the fact that the ability to connect, this idea of genuine connection, especially through digital spaces, the way that you believe that it can be true, and this little tiny glimmering of hope that Headstream has given you, you have evolved this idea of connection so much. And I'm honestly so proud of you. And I am so excited to see how you will continue to grow in this space and every other space that you embark on. And, and Thank a you. Lot. I really appreciate that. That was a lot that I just said. I was like, I need to breathe. <laughs> <laughs> but you really hit a lot of really core concepts. So really, impact and intention cannot be seen as, as isolated concepts. Impact and intention 
need to constantly be in relationship and we need to constantly think about how intention and impact are either aligned or not aligned. And then how to design for about these complex problems, even if it's not for the majority of the population. And at the same time, recognize that many of these products should not be focusing on sustainability as profit, rather sustainability as social impact. And so I, I really appreciate everything that you just said. And I would really like to, to start going in the direction of that second assumption that you brought up on how to not adapt for the edge cases, but rather intentionally design with them. So I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit more about the importance of diverse perspectives as people are designing their platforms, as they're designing digital spaces, why are the diverse perspectives so, so necessary? So I'm going to be completely candid here. My knee-jerk reaction to that question is, who is still asking this question and why are we still asking this question? Say that again. Uh, Say that again. (laughs) Yes. Like, that's my first reaction to this. Because here's the deal. There's an abundance of information in this world that points to the inherent complexity of the human experience. Humans are this beautiful mix of capacities, capabilities, and circumstances. And these three things change based on time. And who you are this moment will inevitably change the next day, hour, week. The human experience has diversity built into it. And then you bring communities in, and all of a sudden you have to factor in the impact of influences, interconnected experiences, and intersections within as well as beyond your communities. Humanity itself has diversity built into it. Thinking about all of this sure creates this intimidating complex map in your head. And before you delve into what that complexity entails and how you can harness it, you need to accept the fundamental fact that the complexity exists. Diversity exists. It's observable, it's quantifiable, and it's impactful. When all the data is pointing to that inherent complexity, why are we still questioning why we need to build solutions that can encapsulate that complexity? Because at this point, you aren't questioning the premise that diversity is important to build human connection because it's missing something. You're questioning it because you don't think that diversity is enough. You don't think that diversity is powerful enough or poignant enough to build genuine human connection. And so we'll always keep needing more and more information to justify the need for diversity. At which point, I'd humbly ask you to evaluate if your intention is to create a space that can foster genuine human connection. Because turns out, humans connect when they feel seen, which makes diversity and representation an integral part of human connection. And any solution that is a simplified one-dimensional approach to tackling connection will not be able to capture the authenticity, the vulnerability, and sincerity that you would get if you built for everyone. Oh my gosh. Pramila, I know we say this every time you say anything comes out of your mouth, but wow. (laughs) Honestly, just thinking about the fact that I don't know why people continue to ask this question. And you know what? Like, it is such a duh. And I'm so glad that our audience can really, like, I can just imagine all of them nodding their heads like, yeah, duh. That our, our interconnectedness as a humanity is dependent on embracing each other's diversity. And 
that ability to to connect humanly, authentically, genuinely in a way that is evolving towards embracing that interconnectedness is really a powerful way in which if digital spaces were really geared towards, especially for young people who are this next generation, that's when we can really start seeing like social change, starting to see the dismantling of some of those structures of oppression that you mentioned earlier that are blockades for these branches to be nurtured and to grow and for these digital spaces to be impactful and in the nitty gritty for very specific communities. Yvonne, I would love to hear your thoughts on this as well. Yeah, my head is just spinning because unfortunately, diversity is not something that is built into the core of a lot of our structures. If we think of agencies, of schools, of products, we usually see a diversity day as to uh, alluding to valuing diversity But whenever there are things like diversity day or diversity trainings, it really says, I'm just checking a check. I'm just marking a checkbox so that I can say I accomplished this. Because if we really valued, if we really recognized that diversity is something we experience every single day in our own lived experience, then our design would reflect it. Our programs would reflect it. And Really, the, the, what really struck me from what you said, Pramila, is that diversity is important, is necessary, is evident, because it's constantly evolving. And if we really want to create products that evolve with people, as people evolve, we need to first understand that this evolving nature of our humanity is completely outside of our control. The very best that we can do is acknowledge it, is observe it, is, is to respect it. But if we don't do any of that, then we're not really gonna, going to create things that have the intention and the impact that is required for these to, to be what they need to be. So I just want to say that I would be happy to, to attend any classes that you teach when you become a professor because the way that you speak is captivating, it is powerful, and it is truth. So I just want to say kudos and, and thank you so much for spending the time with us here today. It's, it's, it's really I am not wrapping up. I'm just saying thank you halfway through our conversation because I'm feeling really grateful. I think my parents would be very happy if I decide to become a professor. My mom was one and my dad's a coach. They'd be more than happy to see me become one. (laughs) I'm so sorry. I'm not trying to say what you should become. Just saying that you give me Professor Pramila vibes, you know? Maybe it's in the genes and maybe this is you carving your own path. I just want to like really echo what Yvonne was saying about how this idea of things evolving, connection really genuinely evolving, and all of these really complex topics that you're you're delving into. I kind of want to now hone in and hear about how a lot of these insights, how did they come up within your own project as a Headstream fellow? You know, working in a space that is trying to uplift youth well-being on digital platforms for the upliftment and the empowerment of young people. How do you feel that your project complicated and explored this idea of human connection on digital spaces for young people? Oh, so this is going to be a fun story. Before I go into how it complicated and explored this idea, I'd like to give a little background on how my project itself progressed. So when I started out, I decided that I'm going to do a series of panels 
like panel interviews with everyone working in the space. My idea was if I brought everyone to the same table and asked all of them the difficult questions, then it would solve all the misunderstandings and we would all come up with the ideal solution. I was very certain that that was going to happen. And so I decided that my project theme was going to be how visibility on social media impacted vulnerability and wellness. Uh, The reason I chose that was because we are very meticulous about how we are visible to other people. We're also very cognizant about how we choose to be vulnerable online. And I really wanted to explore that idea. So I took this panel idea, I took my theme, and I pitched it to uh, the head stream research director, Tony. And (laughs) so Tony basically told me at that point, Pramila, panels are boring. They generate fewer ideas than one-on-ones. And you can't just have an objective panel. You need to have a point to these questions. You need to challenge people. And when I read all of that, in that moment, I laughed out loud out of sheer embarrassment because I didn't know what else to do. I didn't know how I was going to change my entire project. Yeah, it was wonderful. Anyway, I realized that I need to be able to take lessons from whatever critiques are being given my way. And so I transitioned from this idea of panels to designing domains of questions. My main task was to find out what are really the indicators of visibility and vulnerability and what kind of impact do they have. So I decided to have four domains of questions, which were around safety, advocacy, expectations, and personal growth. And as indicators, For safety, I decided to reach out to organizations that are creating online and physical safe spaces. For advocacy, I decided to reach out to artists and advocates and activists in the space. For expectations, I reached out to athletes, makeup artists, dancers, essentially anyone who's like a physical influencer. And for growth, I reached out to anyone and everyone who was sharing their personal experience online. And After about 30 interviews and a lot more discussions, this is the conclusion my project gave me. And trust me, I'm still not happy with the conclusion, but this is what the data tells me. Well-being is inherently messy and complicated. And that's the point. So as I said, I wasn't very happy with this because when I was growing up, I was taught that there's an ideal least resistance path to well-being. Straying from that path is what causes all sorts of issues. As long as you keep your head down and just follow the path that's given to you, you will achieve well-being at some point. You will achieve your best self. Everything would be great. But talking to all of these incredible people made me realize that there's no one path to well-being. In fact, there's no such thing as a well-being normal. Forcing the idea that there's an ideal state of being just makes the well-being space really, really tiny. And everyone who can't fit in that space becomes an anomaly, an outlier. And the world tells you that we're not here building solutions for outliers. So in that sense, I found a lot of relief in the fact that well-being is just very complicated and that it's okay if I'm not at that ideal state yet and it's just a messy journey. In trying to find common variables among well-being, we tend to simplify all of these complexities. But here's the deal. Building well-being is a complex process. Acknowledging that is a complex process. And that acknowledgement is also just a part of well-being. 
I'm still grappling with all of this, which is why there are more questions in my answers than answers. But yeah, that's how it is. This makes me think of what I was thinking about when you were describing wellness at the very beginning of our conversation, of wellness as a tree that is having branches stretching and growing outward in almost every direction. And the reason that was coming to mind is because when you said well-being is inherently messy, and that's the point, it really makes me think of tree branches and twigs, where if you just look at a tree, depending on the time of year, you won't be able to see the sky on the other side. You're going to see a web of twigs crossing each other, pushing each other to the side maybe a couple of, uh, of branches that might be ready to fall off. And so just looking at a tree and focusing on specific areas of the tree, it can look very messy and very overwhelming. All of the details, all of the directions, so on and so forth. But fundamentally, all of those branches are still connected to the trunk and the trunk is grounded by the roots. And so even though it is messy, it's meant to be that way because it's really tied to the ground by those roots. And it's it's unified by that trunk. So I couldn't help but think of how accurate your description was this earlier about the tree. You already told us a little bit of of how a lot of these insights and specifically the direct feedback from, from Tony helped your own project evolve over time. I think this is like what everything that you just said I think needs to be explored, but we I don't have questions prepared for these. Like I love that you brought up these four different points of conversation for your interviews, expectations, safety, advocacy, personal growth. If anything, these four sound like core components of self-reflection as people try to explore their own well-being, knowing that there is no well-being normal, but there are components that can contribute to that experience and that understanding of wellness. So I'm just really... I don't know what the word is. This is what we need to be talking about. You know, this is the core. This is important. It's necessary. It's relevant. And a lot of these questions that Pramila, that you've been asking that it's like you came in like with some questions thinking they'd get answered, but you ended up leaving with even more questions. And those questions are more specific. I think for all of our listeners and for anybody that's thinking about well-being, the only way to really get closer to actually enhancing our own personal definitions of that and feeding that and nurturing that is by constantly delving into the those complex evolving questions because well-being is something that evolves these questions are something that evolve all of these things are a part of our evolution that enhances our interconnectedness and builds equity and so i don't know i'm I guess I'm now starting to think about like, I wish that I met some of these people that you really interviewed with that actually enhanced your own capacity to think of even more detailed questions. I promise you'll get to meet them through my project. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Yay. (laughs) I know that a lot of these stories are likely to, to be personal and I don't want to put you in a position to violate confidentiality, but I'm wondering if there's any specific story that stands out that really contributed to these conclusions that you have reached, specifically that well-being is messy. Is there any one story that really stands out as evidence, as demonstration of why this is true and it's necessary for us to see it like that? 
To be honest, I can't pick one story because this is legitimately what happened after every single interview where I went in thinking, wow, I already learned so much. I like know so much about the space. And then this person starts talking and I'm just sitting there thinking, I know nothing about the space. Wow, this is a completely new perspective. And I think that's also the beauty of it where it turns out the more and more you talk to people and the more and more diverse stories you get, the more beautiful the space gets and the more complex the space gets. And I hope that's the one takeaway people can definitely take from this podcast, that diversity is important and all these stories are very important. So hearing these stories of diversity, acknowledging that it's really important, I'm really hoping that our listeners are able to really take that to heart and start considering changes that they can make in their everyday life to start welcoming conversations around diversity, conversations around complexity. But truth be told, to many people, these conversations are very uncomfortable because these conversations require an honest understanding of systems that cause harm. And so do you have any best practices or any suggestions on how people can best navigate the discomfort that some of these conversations can bring up? That feels like a very loaded question. And I wish I have an answer that would really help. But no, I think each person needs to develop their own way to navigate that discomfort. For me, it meant that I go educate myself on what different communities are facing. I go talk to people and let them drive the conversation about what they need and what they're struggling with and what they celebrate. And I needed to sit with myself to say, what is it about whatever it is that they're saying that's making me uncomfortable? And that kind of self-reflection itself is very, very uncomfortable. I don't like meditating. But after doing all of these interviews and sitting down, I realized that I just had to sit with these thoughts and I had to sit with a lot of those emotions to see how all of them connected. So no, I don't have any tips or tricks up my sleeve to tell people. But all I can say is that this is meant to be messy. This is meant to feel uncomfortable. Mic drop, mic drop. And I think the real punch to what you're saying is that uh, that's actually a bit of an aggressive imagery. But, but the core of what I'm hearing you say is that feeling uncomfortable will be part of the process. Because if you as an individual are not willing to be uncomfortable, then you're pushing that discomfort onto somebody else. You're having to need other people to do that emotional labor, that self-reflection labor on your behalf. And then your individuals will not do the, that internal transformation, that internal evolution that is necessary, that is natural. So sitting with the discomfort and recognizing that, yes, these systems are uncomfortable. These systems are complicated. And that discomfort is kind of where we need to be if we really want to take these conversations seriously. Mic drop, Pramila. Heck yeah. And just really highlighting something that you're both talking about, this idea of that messy like self-reflection, like making that distinction of making sure that we're not having other people carry our emotional labor. That's something that we need to go through in a process of growth on our own. And yeah, it's messy, right. it's uncomfortable, but also that we are not alone. 
We don't need to put our emotional labor onto others, but we can walk on this path of growth with others, vulnerably, authentically, in a way that is constantly evolving and growing. And I think that is something that this dual twofold purpose is key to that inner and outer transformation for our well-being as individuals and our well-being as a collective humanity. This was really powerful, yo. I really appreciate this conversation. You know, Yvonne, we've done a few of these podcast episodes now, but I I feel like they've all just now like built up and Pramila, you really just like spiked it. Oh, spiked. Yeah, like spiked it up the energy that I'm feeling, the like love that I'm feeling, the like this feeling of motivation and vision and evolution. I feel so impacted and I'm just so grateful that you were able to serve as not only a Headstream fellow, but to be a leader in this space. I know you shared earlier about your personal journey in this idea of social impact. And honestly, a lot of the pain that has come from this space in what it has been. And I just am very excited and hopeful to see how this glimmering of hope that you got from Headstream will continue to grow and evolve into your own beautiful projects that will help communities well-being, uplift and grow and be able to nurture those branches and get rid of and dismantle once and for all these really uh, limiting structures of oppression. And so I'm just thankful for your power. Yvonne, thank you for being once again the best co-host ever. And to our listeners for riding the next wave with us and for really listening to Pramila and taking in her learnings and applying them in a way where all of us can grow and evolve together. So knowing that it's hard to pinpoint a single story, I'm just wondering that your project as a whole, knowing that you did about 30 interviews, how have these collectively changed the way that you understand well-being? Knowing that the way you understand well-being did change because of your experience with this project, how is it that these stories specifically contributed to that change? Oh, that's a wonderful way of phrasing that question. (laughs) So the biggest transformation through this project was that this project completely destroyed the idea that improvement is a foundation for well-being and that well-being is a metric of someone's identity and self-worth completely destroyed it. And before this project, I visualized well-being as a tree, right? There are several branches, blossoms, growth, and pruning. I was very happy with this imagery. It showed me that where I'm right now isn't indicative of where I will be and that I always have the potential to grow. As I was working on my project, my focus went from the branches to the trunk. Turns out at the core my journey towards well-being was still very much rooted, pun intended, in reaching an ideal state. I wanted to get better to the point where I didn't have to worry about getting worse. And you take this incessant need to chase the ideal coupled with the inherent notion that where I'm right now isn't enough. Yeah, that can get pretty toxic pretty fast. And as someone who has mental health struggles, I can't keep chasing some ideal position where I feel like I'll finally feel worthy. 
it made me realize that I needed to break down the violence implicit in the idea of well-being before I can even embark on the journey towards well-being. And when I reflected on my personal experiences through this new lens, it honestly transformed the way that I perceived well-being. I mean, not too long ago, during the first run of this very podcast, I had a panic attack. And if I can come back to the same space to talk to you through my vulnerability and pain and anxiety and feel okay, that seems paradoxical to the paradigm that I need to feel better in order to feel well. And it just proved to me that I was looking at well-being using the wrong metrics. So at the end of it all, well-being is a very important thing to build solutions for. But it is by destroying the idea that improvement is foundational for well-being and that well-being is a foundational metric of your self-worth that we can actually allow ourselves to look at individuals holistically. We can educate ourselves to deeply listen to communities. We can push ourselves to break down cultural stigmas to genuinely empower human beings. Because youth deserve nothing less than our absolute best, as cheesy as that sounds. So just clarification question. Are you saying that individuals can experience a decline in how they are feeling and their mood and their thoughts and still be able to be on a positive spectrum of wellness? I don't think there is a positive or negative spectrum of wellness. I just think that feeling not so great, feeling terrible is a very human experience and it's just a part of well-being. There's nothing bad about it and there's no bad part of well-being that you can quote unquote slip into. Thank you for clarifying and for challenging that binary that I was still operating under of improvement and decline or wellness and unwellness. So great clarification. Thank you. Pramila, I knew that by you coming onto this episode, us, myself, Yvonne, our listeners, the entire Headstream community would just be kind of blown away and have so many new insights to be thoughtful of when thinking about the digital platforms that they're building for youth. But I just want to give you so much gratitude and say so much thanks because your power is a light that nobody can turn away from. And I am so excited to see how, from what you shared with your own personal story of, you know, there are moments of trauma in this space and the structures of which how digital spaces and developing these applications have been utilized are oftentimes with a really messy process behind it with a lot of ill intentions at times. But this glimmering of hope that you've taken from Headstream, I'm so excited to see how that can then be transformed along with like your light and your power into things that will really help the communities that need it and will really uplift the, the well-being of individual members of very specific communities and address really complex issues that oftentimes people are so uncomfortable to address within their own communities while also really impacting and evolving the well-being of humanity as a collective. And so again, I just wanted to say thank you so much for being on today's episode. Your insights are invaluable to each of us and our listeners. 
And Yvonne, as always, you are the best co-host a girl could have. And to our amazing listeners, thank you for riding this wave with us. So before we go, Pramila, if individuals want to learn more about the work that you've done or want to get a hold of you, what is the best way to get in touch with the project and the work that you do? So if you'd like to check out more of my work, you can go to theunfilteredarchive.com, which is the website where I'm documenting things about my project. I also have a Instagram handle linked to my project itself called at the unfiltered archive. If you'd like to just learn more about me and the work that I'm doing in general, you can also check out my other Instagram, which is at the fickle artist and LinkedIn because adults apparently do LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn. All right, y'all. Thank you for all of our listeners and see you next time. I'll see you next time, y'all. Thanks so much for listening to the Next Wave podcast brought to you by Headstream, an initiative by Second Muse designed to improve and empower youth well-being through digital technologies. Learn more today at headstreaminnovation.com. We'll see you next time on The Next Wave.